Welcome to From the Producer's Office, a series of informal podcasts with Opera Holland Park's director of opera, James Clutton. In conversation with creatives and collaborators, we explore the process of putting opera on stage and how the artists involved approach their craft. Hello, welcome to From the Producer's Office. I'm James Clutton, director of opera at Opera Holland Park. Today I've got a guest with me in person, we're not on Zoom, uh, singer and author, um, Paul Carey-Jones. Hi, Paul. Hi, James. How you doing, man? I'm all right. Yeah, good yeah. to be. It's good to be actually in person. Doing it's good stuff to be anywhere. Like yeah. yeah. It's just nice to get out of the house. Exactly. Yeah, so we'll talk about lots of things over the next uh, 45 minutes or so, but let's uh, let's go back right to the beginning. Um, when you were a kid, was there music in your family? Not, not professionally. You know, I grew up in Cardiff. Um, my dad's from West Wales, from a sort of farming background. My mum's from Cardiff Irish, working class family, whose roots are in the west of Ireland. Right. Uh, that's where my grandmother grew up. Um, so there was a lot of singing. Right. In terms of the pedigree, but it was, you know, in the amateur sense of, yep. you know, you got that in Ireland and, and Wales, that sort of yep. weekly weekend competitions, the Steadbods and so on. Yeah, yeah, nice. So there's a few of them dotted throughout the family. Um, but nothing professional. Right. So you know it was it was I was aware of music and we were you know my mum and dad got us piano lessons and so mm. on growing up they, okay. were, they were keen that we sort of got that okay. rounded education a lot of there was a lot of music in school well that's a whole different thing we'll come on yeah, to that yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but did, was there much classical around then at that point no my mum was my mum was keen uh, that's what she listened to she mostly listened to you know I remember sort of being around the house she always had the radio on it was yeah. usually radio 4 but if she had music on it was, it was radio 3 yeah so she was, you know, that was her taste. I remember get, getting my, so I, I, I don't know, I was not my, I was a really shy kid, but somehow also interested in, in drama. Right. Which, maybe those two things go together, yeah, yeah, so, you know, often, in some yeah. sort of strange way. And um, my dad was in TV, and my little brother was like, a, he was a little, Cool. He was the he was the child actor because he was beautiful. He was not not now, but back then you wouldn't think. But, you know, but back then, you know, he had blonde hair, freckles, and a tooth missing, and he was really, really, really cute. And so he got he got he did quite a lot of TV work and yeah. acting stuff when he was sort of nine, ten. And I sort of remember looking at that as, as the sort of shy middle brother going, mm. yeah, but that that does look like quite fun. Mm. And um, I got a role on the Welsh soap opera Public Call. Right. In uh, in the mid eighties, how old have um, you been, more or less? Twelve, thirteen, yeah, okay. something like that. Yeah. So they came round. They were doing a storyline about the the um, there's a pub in the village. You've seen Publicum? I haven't. I'm no. afraid. I'm sorry. Oh, right. To do this. So there's a pub in the village, and the, and the landlords of the pub, you know, they they had a kid, and the, uh, every now and then, every few years, there'd be a storyline around the child, mm. and they'd recast mm. it because you know the child would have grown up. So he was now, this, this child, Gareth Wynne, had reached about the age of 11, 12. So they were casting for this guy, for this storyline. And um, so they came around the school auditioning us, and we all auditioned. And uh, I got the role of Dulan, who was Gareth Wynne's friend. Gareth Wynne was being bullied and he'd run away from school. Right. And Dulan, his friend, went to the teacher and... Good, and good story. And spoke up. So now, the guy that got the role of Gareth Wynne was Johan Griffith. Okay. Right, so he yeah. ended up with a Hollywood career. <laughs> and poor old Dunham got written out after two episodes. <laughs> so that's the that's the parallel lives 
sliding doors version. Yeah, that's a sliding doors yeah. version. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. But anyway, I got. I remember very clearly. I got paid seventy-five quid a day for filming that. So I ended up one hundred and fifty quid, okay, and I bought my first CD player. Getting nice money, man. It was all right. For, yeah, in those days. <laughs> yeah, you know, I bought a new, I bought a CD player. That was a new thing in those days, and and a recording of Marriage of Figaro because I remember my mum oh. listening to that. Oh, wow! She was a big Mozart. Always been. Well, she's still it's a big Mozart fan. Wow! And um, Beethoven Emperor Piano Concerto. Those right. were my first two right. CDs, and then I bought Beethoven Nine. So those nice. were the first three CDs. And I you bought those of your own volition. You just, you just yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, I think I'd picked up on her interest in in classical music. Certainly, I was a bit of a geeky kid and a bit sort of. Well, I was a very geeky kid, let's right. be honest. And also a little bit sort of um, a little bit of a quiet rebel, but against mm. you know against sort of my, my, you know my big brother would listen to Simple Minds and Duran yeah, yeah. and all that, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever yeah. was on at the time. And I was like, oh, I want to be different. Yeah, yeah. You know? okay. And this was something different. And, and, and you know, so that was... Nice, nice. That was, that was what I was into. And I, I kind of did it in reverse. I didn't get into pop music until I was about 19, 20. Right. So my pop music taste yeah, is Yeah, went the other way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And was there a moment where you thought, actually, this could be a job? Yeah, I remember that very clearly. So, I, you know, I sang with... Growing up in Wales, it's changed a little bit now, but that tradition is still there. So, and certainly back in the 70s, early 80s. You you sang. Mm-hmm. Our school when I was in primary school, our school class our class choir was the class. You know, yeah. the, it wasn't optional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, you, yeah. you weren't given the choice. It yeah. was like you know, you're going to sing. So what that meant was that if you had any sort of inherent gift for it, then it was discovered. Someone saw it straight away. Yeah, or yeah. Heard it, yeah. And, and then you'd be given then you'd be given the choice, the option to develop yeah. it, which you know yeah. I did a bit. But then I got a. A county scholarship, and I think I was quite—I I think I had to sort of lobby for it a little bit. But you know, I got an audition, and they, you know, passed the audition, and then they then paid for a year of singing lessons for right. me, you know, half an hour a week at the at the Welsh College of Music and Drama. Um, and I was placed with a singing teacher called Beatrice Unsworth, mm. um, with whom I'm still very good friends now. And in my very first lesson, and this is this is there's a, there's a really important point here. In my very first lesson at the age of 16, whenever I was, she listened to me for you know, 20 minutes. And I didn't know what I was doing, and I didn't mm. know any languages or, or technique or anything. But she said, look, um, I, can't promise, uh, I can't promise anyone a Covent Garden career. I remember this like, very, very clearly. Mm. She said, but if you are interested in exploring this as a potential career, mm. you have what it takes. Right, nice, nice. And for her to stick her neck out, yeah, lovely. At the age of sixteen, yeah, because you know there's so many twists and turns beyond that. Oh, I mean, yeah. nobody knows what's around the corner. Yeah, it's yeah. far easier to say, "Oh, hedge your bets," you know, yeah, you know, all that sort of thing. But no, she, you know, she nailed the colours to the mast, wow. and that's what at that sort of very um, that crucial formative age got me thinking about. Absolutely, it. well, it's a very influential age. That as yeah, well. you know, and if you've got someone that you obviously respect and saying that, then it's even more so. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a big step at that time. I think that, because, as you say, the, there's lots of meandering turns on a, on, a, on a career of a singer. But you've got to get that work done at the beginning. And part of my problems over the last few years is when we're talking about the different people coming into our industry, is that we, we 
we can do better, of course, as companies, and we need to. Um, but in some way, we're accepting the premise of a question that we can't answer because there's not enough people coming through from mm. the school. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. You know, and that's a class thing, race yeah. thing, all this stuff, yeah. everything. Um, because that music you've just talked about is not in schools like that, yeah. we get a, a far smaller pool of people to pick from. Well, there's there's also then the uh, you know so that's the bottom one or two rungs of the ladder. Mm. Then there's a sort of third and fourth and fifth rungs of the ladder, which is training at music college level, yeah. which has got even in my day it was extensive and expensive, but yeah. it's got even more so. Yeah, yeah. You know, very steeply more so. Yeah. Um, and you know you can't criticize the music colleges for that because they're there to provide yeah. A, yeah. A, you know a, an educational service and if people are signing up for it and paying for it then yeah. so be it and and you know if they say we can do this for 6 7 8 years yeah. people do and they should, you know it's not there no so but but the problem is when you're on you know if you're from a you know a, a working class background let's say and you do manage to get on the first or second rung of the ladder mm -hmm. you're then looking at music college training and you're going that is a that's a huge outlay yeah and with the other thing that kids are doing now and this isn't their choice either this is the way the system has been designed mm -hmm. is that they're aware that going into higher education is going to land you in a lifetime of debt yeah and so they are obliged not just to go oh what am I fancy studying or yeah. what am I good at but yeah. what's going to pay the bills at the end of it yeah 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 I think well absolutely but when you were at that point was it a struggle when you, so you let's jump on a bit but you know obviously you can see you're getting pushed on a little bit nicely doing well to get into music college was that a problem uh, everything you just described right now was that a problem for you then for me that i i was lucky to have so you know beatrice unsworth guided me through singing lessons at university i studied physics at university i was going to come on to that i mean yeah. that's quite a subject at university that yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 but, um, but yeah, we'll talk about that. But she guided me through those years as a, you know, keeping on with my singing lessons mm. and then singing with choirs a little bit and stuff. Then I, you know, I taught for three years, and then at the end, you know, during that period, I thought teaching like, what? Uh, physics, maths, computer science. Okay. To how old kids? To how eleven old? to eighteen secondary wow. school level. Went actually went back to my old secondary school as a teacher. Oh, right, did you? Quite, yeah, nice. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Potter term gamekeeper type. Yeah, yeah. But. Um, but it was, you know, around that time, so I was getting to be 22, 23, and thinking, okay, I remember thinking to myself, you know, I don't know if I want to do singing as a career, but I do mm. know if I don't explore it now, yep. I'm going to wake up one day when I'm 40 and wonder, yep. you know, what, what might have been. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, remember on my sort of 40th birthday, remembering that nice. conversation yeah, with yeah. myself and thinking, well, I still don't know. <laughs> but it's good to have that memory of it because that is an important thing because in many ways it's a nuts career to go into with all the highs yeah. of it because of the insecurity and so many things yeah. that, that we'll talk about but I think that yeah I mean that's a big step I, I was aware I think I'm not saying I wouldn't have been happy doing anything else but I, I was aware that I wouldn't have been entirely happy had I not like I say had I not explored whether I could be a professional singer because it was a it was an itch I had to scratch yeah. and I think you've got to have that you know, you've got to be wary of saying, of tying up people's personal happiness with it too much, because mm. there's, there's, you know, there's a huge amount of emotional baggage that goes with the career and, yeah. and, and the insecurity of the career anyway. So I wouldn't quite put it in those terms. Perhaps I would have, you know, five years ago. But I think it's something that you you have to have a sense of. It's 
it's not a it's not a sensible career choice. No, just on the nuts and bolts of it. No. So and it will, you know, suck a lot about out of you whether you like it or not. So you you know you've got a friend of mine said put it like this the other day. He said there's and I said to him there's an awful lot of unhappy people at the top of this business. Mm. So you know the people who you would look at singers and yep. go, they're they're really successful and yep. yet they're miserable. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not a majority, but you know, you come yeah. across them yeah. now and again. You go, what's you know, what's the problem? I'm like, if I had their career, I'd be mm-hmm. you know over the moon. Um, and he said this. He said the feeling you get on stage when you walk out on stage in front of an audience is mm. the same feeling whether you're at your local village hall or that's in front of your class at school, mm-hmm. or if you're walking out on stage at Covent Garden on the mm-hmm. mountain. Mm-hmm. And he said that's the reason you do this job. Mm. And he said if 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 that feeling that you get that moment you step in front of an audience isn't your fundamental reason for doing this job mm. then there's nothing else about it which will make you happy yeah. because it's easy to sit there <laughs> going oh yeah I'm not enjoying it now but if I, you know, if I were doing this role or that role or mm. if I were doing this at Covent Garden or the Met or wherever, yeah, yeah. Park, wherever it is mm. then I'd be happy yeah and then you get to that point and you find actually it's the same feeling yeah yeah and I, if you I, don't like that feeling or if that feeling isn't enough then I think that's I think that's absolutely right and I, I, I think that there's there's more of that around at the moment there's more of things aware I mean I I tell this story a lot um, socially that when I, now and again I do some sort of careers nights and things mm-hmm. and uh, careers days and uh, often I get put with a an actor or a TV producer or something we're on that the, the sort of performance table and right. um, you can see a lot of kids wanting to walk towards you, can you and you can see all their parents pulling them away <laughs> <laughs> do not do not go over sign so you know, time, it's, you know do not go to that table there's not a career there and you can see why parents would think that when this look from the outside and I think that that's a you know you need so much um, infrastructure support to do the job yeah. as well. Well, this is this is the socio-economic problem yeah. at, at its core. Is you know I think about it, and I'm not from a wealthy background, but you know my mum and dad own their own home, yeah. and they've got spare bedrooms. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm. So even with someone like me, there's been points in my career where you know I've been working abroad a lot for a year. So I've rather than rent somewhere in London, yeah. Yeah. I've gone. I've, I've moved my stuff home. Yeah. And been at home, you know, with my mum and dad for for two, three months, whatever it is, mm. when I'm at home, and saved myself a year's worth of rent. Yeah. Well, that's that's a safety net. Yeah, of course. Um, and and sometimes we don't see that. We're sort of going, well, you know, they they, they it's not like they're bankrolling me with you know, no, no. With, with a with a salary or a you know, what you call a stipend or whatever. You know, but yeah. But there's those things that you fall back on that that a, lot, a, of very people, good that a lot of people don't have. Don't have absolutely. Um, Okay, well that leads nicely on to because um, you know I'm going to talk a bit about some of the work you've done for for me up on par, but also you know through the pandemic uh, you were writing a lot of well blogs initially and then became a book. Yeah, do you want to say give the sort of elevator pitch about your book to anyone listening? What 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 is it? Well, I was I was in London on my birthday in March 2020, mm-hmm. and we were me and my partner. We're going to the theatre. Our partner's a nurse. Mm-hmm. At the time, she was a research, a haematology research nurse. Mm-hmm. And this was exactly at the time when, well, she had been talking about this virus <laughs> for about six weeks by that point. Right. And I remember saying to her in February, going February twenty twenty, going, well, but you know, 
it's it's only got like a one percent fatality rate. What's the problem? You know? Yeah. And she sort of ran me through <laughs> the, the science of it and said, <laughs> and then I went, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. And this was at a time when the newspapers were all saying, were all saying what I was saying. Yeah. So I was reading newspapers, going, oh God, yeah, this is this is something that's, you know, this is a train coming down the tunnel. Mm. So we so. We had tickets to the theatre, and it was about the time when remember there was that sort of period of about a week, ten days, where Johnson was going. Don't go to the theatres. Yes, we're going to keep them open, but don't go. Don't go. go it's a nightmare. I was watching yeah. that speech live, and it was just terrifying. Yeah. Looking yeah. back, it's even worse, isn't it? Yeah. But at the time, we discussed it, and you know, not in ignorance, in in full knowledge of what was going on, and um, and we said, should we go? Mm. And first, it was going to see Leopoldstadt, mm-hmm. Stop yeah. which you know, I really wanted to see, and I said, you know, okay. Yeah. I really want to see this and also it's probably the last time for a long time that we're going to get to go to the theatre yeah. so we went and we sat you know half the people hadn't turned up and mm. the other half were coughing and it was like this real it was like you know it yeah. was like you imagine a, yeah. a pandemic movie just at that last yeah, yeah, yeah. scene before it hits yeah. Yeah. And, um, but also she knew that she was going to get redeployed mm-hmm. onto the front line right. in some sense and you know I because I had her insight into it, there's no particular sort of genius on my part, but because I had her insight into it, I could see what was inevitably going to happen with yeah. with theatres. Yeah. And and not... You remember people at the time were going, oh, will it be all right by August? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, August what year? You know? Yeah, yeah. So I, I was very... Because of her... Like I say, because of her perspective on it, I was very clear that it was going to take months, if not years. So... And, and lo and behold, it then did. You know, uh, so I said, she's got two kids. She did get redeployed onto onto the COVID wards doing research on treatments, and that and at the very same time my work all got cancelled. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said to her, you know, there's no point going back to Cardiff. Why don't I just hang around in London, help you with the kids? I'm not mm-hmm. doing anything, mm-hmm. um, and and you know, at least I can be, at least I can feel that I'm yeah. a useful part of it. So she said, great. And um, the other thing she said at that time was, you know, this is going to be like the plague. Mm in the 1600s and we should all be keeping plague diaries yep. to, to, you know, to, as a historical record. And I said, okay. And I thought about that and then I thought, you know, actually, I, I've, I've written diaries before for myself mm. and they're just, mm. they're, they're unprintable because they're all full of swearing and things. So I thought, okay, I know I need to focus myself more on yeah. making this, because this is supposed to be something that's useful to other people, mm. not just me. So, um, and I'd written a blog like sporadically before. So I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, now that I've, you know, we all had time to do things that we'd always wanted to do. So, mm-hmm. so I'm going to give myself the discipline of writing one a week. Right. So I wrote one a week from sort of mid, late March, mm. all the way through. And then rapidly found myself, you know, didn't mean to talk about the state of the industry or anything mm-hmm. big like that. But that's inevitably what you what find yourself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then by, by October 2020, I'd got uh, enough of it to, to make a book. People were saying to me, you know, I've got a lot of older relatives who don't read stuff online. Yeah. And they're saying, well, how can we, we've heard about this? Because a couple of them had caught the attention. I wrote one about, you know, about putting classical music content online for nothing and yeah. that didn't make any economic sense. And that sort of caught fire and caught people's attention. So people were asking me, how can I read this if it's not online? Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, you know, it'd be good if it was on paper, wouldn't it? And um, around the same time, I was recording, uh, I was doing some voiceover work and I was recording an audio book mm-hmm. for an author I know and um, got to talking to them about how to go about publishing it via self-publishing mm-hmm. mechanisms and it's it's you know in getting into the nuts and bolts of it I thought this is much easier than I thought it would be yeah and so we got it out there and and that's how it ended up being a book 
And I think it is a bit of that state of the nation type thing now looking back on it already. Because I think that, I don't know about you, but I struggle sometimes to remember exactly the timeline of some of those yeah. things. I mean, I, I remember when we in 20, in end of March 2020, we cancelled our season because we have to build the theatre. Yeah. And I remember being criticised by some of our members. One particular wrote to me and said, never trust me again because we'd cancelled so early and we were ridiculous <laughs> yeah. you know I mean yeah. it didn't prove to be correct yeah. end, but I think but I think that you know so you could see it coming so it's good to have those some of those records but let's talk about you mentioned there about the online stuff and we were talking before we started recording about we both talk about things like this a lot so let's not go through any subjects let's just throw them open and mm. then let's have a chat online material um, when the pandemic broke Everyone, but everyone seemed to be putting everything out. Yeah. Um, them sitting, sitting in the bathroom, mm. sitting in the street, um, all digital stuff. For me, as a person who runs the company and then also as the company, there were two things for me. One was that I was actively telling all our team to, to not do it yeah. because I didn't want it. I just, that was my personal opinion. I didn't right. want stuff out there. Right. And secondly, realize how little stuff we had in the can yeah. after all these years. Yeah. And so that's changed our view now. We, we film everything now. But let, let's, following on from those two things for me, you because you've written about this extensively, talked about it, um, you know, online films of opera, digital stuff. Your, your book's called Giving It Away. Mm. Why are we giving that away? Well, because to come up, in short, to come up with a business model where you can charge effectively for online content mm. is hard mm. and it takes a lot of time mm. and a lot of coordination between mm. the people producing it. Now, un largely unnoticed by the viewing public, movies and TV have managed to do that mm -hmm. because I, I was trying to watch um, Star Trek The Wrath of Khan online the other day. Right. And thinking, you know, it'll be on YouTube. Yeah. You know, because it's an old movie and it'll be on there. Someone will have stuck it on there for nothing. I can watch it for nothing. And you can't. Mm. Even on YouTube, it's not no. there. It's no. £2.49 or whatever it is. Yeah. Now, how has that happened? Well, that's happened by, you know, all, all the movie and TV producers and studios over a period of, you know, 10 years probably. Yeah. Getting together and being really sort of quite hard on, yep, on, on, on all that free online content Completely. that's had a copyright. Yep. They've taken their own stuff off. Yep. They made sure that it's not that there's not stuff online free forever. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise you end up with yep. an endless amount of content that you know oversupplying yep. and only a limited amount of demand. Um, and so they've got they've got their own stuff stuff offline and they've they've clamped down on other people who are putting it online for free. Yep. So that they've created now, they're still not making a profit from it mm. consistently. So that's, you know, they're not giving the, it away. But they're not giving it away. And yeah. there is some glimmer of a business model where they can yeah. now make proper money out of online streaming. Yeah. We're a long way behind that. And, oh. and this conversation only started in 2020 when suddenly we couldn't do the stuff on stage. Yeah. And everybody went, oh, how about online stuff? Yeah. How do we make money from that? Yeah. Well, you wouldn't start from here. Is the yeah. old uh, exactly. Well, <laughs> exactly. And that's a good joke. Um, but I think also what I've talked about for a number of years is the, uh, and pre-pandemic as well in our team, is that um, the... TV and, vi and film industry were just together on that. 
mm. from such an early stage as you just said. Even when, because I remember, we're, I'm a bit older than you, but of the similar vintage, you know, they, it was said when um, video and then DVDs, yeah. it was always going to stop the film industry, yeah, yeah. never has, yeah. you know, um, because they adapted their model to, um, there used to be a thing where films went out on video and then DVD for like a year after the thing, now they've mm. whacked them well, out while all the marketing's still yeah. there, you know. I think, think how much more effective they were lobbying during lockdown yeah. to get restrictions lifted, to get an exception made for them. Yeah. Because I remember, I was the first job I made, I, I went and did, um, well, it was during lockdown. I went out to Belfast to record something with a Belfast ensemble. Right. And we were filming yeah. in, in the theatre there, yeah. no audience. Yeah. We were doing exactly what a TV company would have done. Yeah. But I had to do a 10... They looked into it and they asked explicitly, you know, can, can we get an... I, I had to do a 10-day quarantine. And they asked for an exemption, which if we had been filming a TV show, I would have gone. Yeah. But I didn't get it because it was a theatre... Right. Production, okay. even though it was entirely filmed and and yep. no, there was never going to be you know, exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you know, the theatre industry hadn't lobbied for that same exemption. Yeah. So that you know, that's a really good example. But also illustration. Of absolutely. The but it goes way, way back. Because in the way that because um, they they tried to, but in a, you know, the music industry generally, if we're talking about pop music and everything, you know, yeah. they make their money now. The big acts from live performances and merchandising. They don't sell units enough. Well, yep. if you're very, very big, you sell enough units, you get a tiny percentage of Spotify or whatever. But I think that because our units are so small, mm. that's never going to work. Mm. And and the thing is the you know, it's like I get frustrated online. I'm always arguing that journalists sometimes like me for this, but I always hate it when people say on, on Twitter, you know, I can't read the article because it's behind yeah. the paywall. It's like, well, oh, fuck it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what, what, as in they're going to pay for it? Of course it should be behind a firewall. And the industry is now, on the newspapers as well, has lost it because the ones that are free are the ones you don't want to read. Yeah. So people read those ones yeah. and get badly informed, but they're not paying for the ones that with a bit more detail. Well, and that's, that's the problem, isn't it? That yeah. People have, that people have, uh, have yeah, that idea, people, a whole generation now has grown up with the idea that you can read anything online for free and yeah. view anything online for free. And yeah. to, you know, to, like, like I say, it takes a lot of coordination and a long time to turn that yeah. mindset around that people yeah. are, that, you know, that people are willing to pay uh, for online content. Even yeah. you know, even recorded music is, as you say, you know, the business model has turned yeah. on its head, isn't it? That, yeah. That, that the record, the recordings now promote the events in the seventies. Uh, absolutely, because even when Richard Bonney worked for us a couple of times, ten years ago or so, um, he was saying that when he was still getting royalties at that point from the sort of recordings he'd done with Joan Sutherland mm. in the sixties, mm. because if you were buying a, a Lucia, yeah. for example, you'd probably still buy yeah. that album rather than yeah. a, a new one or something. Yeah. Um, but those days, those days are long gone. So there, then it turns on its head. If we're not, if we're not going to give it away, which I completely with you, we don't give, we don't give any of our stuff out for free. Mm. Which means one of two things normally for us. It means that uh, we put it out and not many people watch it because <laughs> they don't want to pay, or we don't put stuff out, yeah. and that's the problem. Because I think the branding of companies and the branding of our industry is is a good thing for good films. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the question I ask, the question I always ask, I never get an answer to this, is what's the mechanism? What's the, you know, because I think far too often there's a, there's a thing in the company going, oh, well, we're going to put this online mm -hmm. or on, on, you know, uh, on YouTube or, mm -hmm. or on DVD or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's going to 
you know, and I've gone, you know, what's, what's the point? You know, mm. what's, what's the objective here? Mm. And they go, oh, well, it's going to drum up interest and we'll sell more tickets. Mm. And I'm like, okay, but what, that's a big gap between mm. it's online, it, have you got, have you studied, have you yeah. looked into this, yeah, whether yeah. this actually happens? Because yeah. it, might, it might mean you sell fewer tickets, you don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the, at the very basic level, I've asked companies, like, you, you're putting this online, are you going to put a link for people to donate, even if it's free? But yeah. people if Because I have people coming to me, yeah. going, Oh, I watched this online, and you know this was happening during lockdown a lot because people were really were aware of the, mm-hmm. of the difficult circumstances financially we were all under, and they were coming to me going, "Look, I, I enjoyed watching that thing online. Where can I donate? Yeah. Yeah. Where can I donate to that company?" Yeah. And I'm having to go, "I don't know." Yeah, we had that. And I said, I'll, "I'll send them an email," but that's that's this isn't. they're there with their money. Yeah, no, we, we had that on all of ours, and, uh, and I think the, the thing is that when we were, we. Because it is nice being filmed. It's nice having that record. I've always said this: that being part of a transitory product, I've always quite enjoyed. That mm. if you didn't see those six performances, yeah. it's gone. Yeah. It's a memory, and yeah. that's it. I've, I've always quite enjoyed yeah. that. But when we hit twenty twenty, and I look back on my career, and there was like one film of yeah. it, it just felt a bit. Mm. That's a shame. And so we've, we're filming everything now. Now, what we do with that? It might just buy in the archive. It might just do. We're doing a couple of tiny clips from each one as a promo film for the year mm. whether we put them out or not it's a different thing but when we tried to put uh, the only one that we've put out commercially was our Ballerine Massacre yeah. and me and the team worked really hard on a complete split of so everyone all the stage management all the crew all the players all the singers all the chorus everyone got a bit the difference there is though it's always going to be very small oh yeah but at least I felt okay because it was it's the principle it, the principle yeah. it was fair then you, then you can argue about the amount yeah and, and you know that's to do with setting up a, some sort of profitable business model yeah but it's it, as you say it's setting the principle even if, if you know if it's 50 quid or whatever yeah. then it's then you say okay that amount should be bigger but at least it's there least when it's there. not there then you're in trouble I'd say one other thing about this before I forget about this lockdown about the sort of living room concert yeah. stuff is I think what it revealed was there's a disconnect between the means of production and the artists which yeah. has grown over you know the last few decades so that you had a situation, and this was no individual's fault or no mm-hmm. company's fault, but you had a situation where you had companies under furlough, mm-hmm. and or, or their staff were under furlough, so mm-hmm. they couldn't go into the office, they couldn't go into the theatre yeah. or the rehearsal room. Yeah. So the rehearsal rooms were locked down. Yeah. And then you had the artists who were there, ready, willing and eager to produce yeah. content, yeah. but they didn't have access to the means of production. Yeah. And that was nobody's fault. That's the system, that, but it's a flaw of the system. Yeah. And you'd look at, so you then you know you, you look at what John Sadorman's done. You look mm-hmm. at what Ellen Pritchard did with mm-hmm. her with mm-hmm. and, and her team with yeah. um, with their Pagliacci. Yeah. You know, and, and seen both uh, absolutely blown away by what they yeah. achieved. Absolutely from the pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Yeah. Because they went, you know, they went okay. We, we don't and have access to any of this. We're going to create it from nothing. But yeah. imagine that, that they had had access, and, yeah. and you know, other people. I'm, I'm no good at that sort of thing mm. personally. But I'm, you know, there's a hell of a lot of singers and musicians and artists out there who can create that stuff from yeah. nothing. And imagine that they had had access, even while the staff of these buildings were on furlough. Imagine they had had access to those facilities. Yeah, it, it was very difficult on that, and I think that we. We looked at it, I mean, we did something as soon as we could in the way that we did the first, echoing something you said a little while ago, on the 4th of July it was, or 1st of July, we did something 
as a film in the park oh, because you're allowed to film. Yeah. yeah. But you wasn't allowed to perform. <laughs> <laughs> so allowed to film, and I remember I was, uh, yeah, I was taking the Mickey bear. Everyone saying it's funny how um, the writers from the Times, the Sunday Times, the Guardian, the Observer, all happened to be walking through the park <laughs> that day because I always said I'd give them the nod, say so you might oh, yeah. walk through the park. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that was that frustration about doing those things and that disconnect is is right. But I think that um, it, there's so many things that because I'd be talking to you about this after shows for the last couple of years. The the business really, I think, was is has always been built on sand, mm. always. But after 2020, everyone really knows that. Yeah. And my personal frustration is someone who runs a company, and I know you've worked for us and all that sort of thing, is that I've at least tried, probably haven't succeeded in every way I wanted to yet, and there's still time, but I've looked at that and said, okay, we can't go back to that. Yeah. But a lot of people were saying, we don't want to go back to that. But they seem to be sprinting back to that as, as quickly as they can. Yeah. Which is a worry for me. Well, there's this question, I think, out there of, and, and you know, there's studies beginning to look at this because it's becoming a, well, it is a problem, is about, you know, audience behaviours post-pandemic or post-lockdown. I keep saying post-pandemic, pandemic's not over. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's, this is part of the reasoning mm. behind it. It's, and, and it's difficult, to, it's difficult to understand what's going on because yeah. there's, there's not one trend going on here. Yeah. There's some shows that are selling out. There's yep. a lot of people who say to you, oh, well, every show I've been to has sold out. I mean, mm. yeah, but you were there, you know what I mean? Like, there were loads of shows that you weren't at that no one else was at either. So it's really patchy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you can you can survey audiences and ask them ask them why they're doing what mm-hmm. they're doing, but that sort of assumes that they know, you know what I mean? And a lot of people, lot of people aren't necessarily doing it for, Absolutely. for and any conscious I think, reason. I think also with surveys, you don't always get the answers that, no. that you, that there's a truth, you get no. the answer that people think. Yeah. But the, the one thing I would say, and this is entirely subjective from my point of view, but the things I feel that are successful are the things that are mo- looking forward, not back, yeah. or are moving forward. There yeah. is something new. Yeah. Even if it's not, this isn't like saying, oh, I'm going to do Pandemic the Opera. Yeah, yeah. But because that, that stuff never really hits home. Yeah. But it's stuff. I think about the, the Amico Fritz that we did last year. Yeah. And. You know, you took the decision to not not to try to move the 2020 program to 21, but to do but to yep. program stuff that was new or the same yeah. stuff if it was appropriate. But anyway, yeah, yeah. you're looking at it with fresh eyes. Yeah, yeah. And that I thought that was a brilliant post-lockdown opera. Yeah, because it, it was 90 minutes long. Yeah, and it was sunshine and cherries and yeah. happy ever after and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and you go, yeah, this is this is it's what we needed at that. Yeah. Point. And you know there were other people who did other things which were heavy and whatever, and, that, uh, and and worked equally well. But the point is, it was looked at with fresh eyes, and yeah. it was it was a response to the situation we're in now, not trying to go back to what, yeah. not not trying to recreate what something we lost. Yeah. In in twenty twenty. Well, it was a conscious thing that. Thank you for bringing that up. And it was a conscious thing. It was a great production. I'm really pleased with that show. And um, but I think that I was worried that you start bringing shows for a I thought it was unfair to play around with diaries because if you move to 20 to 21 people mm. booked for 21 already but screwed and the, and the domino effect goes on yeah. so let's try and, and let's start again and bring it back but I think also you had to look and say well it, we need to show we're not only do we need to act differently but we mm. need to show that we're acting differently mm. because I think audiences are a very bright uh, and and intelligent and you have to give them credit for that now sometimes they can just not see things ignore things not be aware of things 
But you also have to let them come with you a bit and bring them with you and say, this is where we are now. This yeah. is, you know, and you were on stage that first year, we still kept our theatre shape this year, but the first year back, 21, we only had 400 seats in there. Yeah. All those cha chairs were individual, gaps between them. You could not come into that theatre as an audience member and not understand that we were up against that. Yeah. You know, and I think that some of the problem that we've all got, we've all got, and this is the next thing I'd like to talk about really is that, because I think personally, uh, we're in a worse situation now than we've been in for these last couple of years. Because I think we've got all of the bad side of the pandemic, audiences not wanting to come out, being out of the habit of coming out, not going out as much, uh, you know, the great regularity, the... Um, performers and artists and backstage staff get much more used to the new world whereas for 20 and 21 we were all focused on the same yeah thing do you yeah. think that yeah and i think uh, you know i think certainly in 2020 we were you know inevitably entirely focused on the pandemic yeah and then um i think this is hit probably freelance opera performers more than mm. it anyone else but Brexit came in yep. beginning of January 21 so that was on our plates as well yeah and then just when you're beginning maybe to get your head around mm. those two things and how they combine um, you've got the cost of living crisis yeah which and and, and, and uh, you know I'll be honest with you I don't think that anyone in any industry in the UK mm. is prepared for 10% inflation in no. the long term because no. they've forgotten I mean I, I vaguely remember that from when I was growing up Yeah. but I've never you know I've been working for 25-30 years I don't and, and I've never had to deal with double no. digit inflation no. and it's and it's it, you know it infects everything it's yeah. like it's like so you know it, it's doing this job or, or you know doing anything in this industry is like running up a steep set of, set of stairs <laughs> but with 10% inflation you're now running up a down escalator yeah. <laughs> and that escalator is getting quicker and quicker yeah. do you know what I mean so you absolutely you're very good now I because I think that also Paul we're in this position where we have to reframe the questions and the answers we yeah. have to do it because I think that if we're only talking about cost anymore cost of tickets, cost of salaries, cost of everything, we're probably going to lose most of those arguments. Mm. For me, the next year for Opron Park, this is where I'm taking it at the moment, we have to we have to talk about the value of that yeah, ticket. Absolutely. And because if you were just saying, do you have that ticket for that money or that thing and that thing, that way madness lies. So a couple of things uh, we talk about is um, the sheer amount of jobs that we do. Now, uh, it's an easy one. You've heard me many times on stage before yep. the shows. Saying, but uh, we actually did it factually the other day, rather than me rounding it up. This this season, we had three hundred seventy eight freelancers work for us during the season. We're a small company. That's us. And I kept repeating that, repeating all the time. Now, Andrew and I were watching um, Maverick last weekend, and now he at the <laughs> he at the end of that film, it comes up. <laughs> you listening to this, Angela? Um, at the end of that film, it comes up. I always love watching credits. At the end of the film, it actually comes up there. It says 10,000 people were involved in making this film. And so I think that they're thinking the similar thing. And Can I just say? Yeah. I could talk for a long time on this. Cool. But I watched that movie the other day as well. And I thought, this is the worst thing. This is the biggest load of bullshit I've ever seen. <laughs> Which is fine. I was expecting <laughs> to think that. But then I looked on, on Rotten Tomatoes. And the critic score is 96%, and the audience score is 99%. 
and I've never felt more strongly that I'm living on the wrong planet. Right. Okay. Interesting. Because I, I enjoyed. Because you enjoyed it. I, I know enjoyed, you did. I mean, Angela loved it. I, I know you did. My, like everybody else. Ninety-nine percent of people enjoyed it. Yeah. I no, I didn't. I thought it was the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> For coming off that for a moment. <laughs> But because I remember it wasn't on that movie, I don't think. But I really remember uh, he doesn't need me to help him. But I really standing up in social situations for Tom Cruise during the pandemic at some point because he he had a lot of tabloid stuff about shouting at people about breaking the. Oh right, right. And I thought he's right because if people are breaking protocols of yeah. safety and the film stops, yeah. Yeah. that's a massive responsibility. Yeah. And and so I think that there's there's a, there's a you know knockdown cascade effect of yep. things of responsibility like yep. that. Um, but anyway, this thing about the amount of people working on. So I'm really going on that line at the moment, and and really trying to make people understand because you get people still saying to me or singers that work for me, "What do you do the rest of the time?" or "What's your other job?" and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. And and we were talking just before we started recording about having a more focused narrative from our industry about what that is because you know yeah. I, I didn't particularly buy all the easy ones like oh it's, it's just as expensive to go to football yeah they're easy ones look, look, they're look, throwaway look, ones that, yeah. that, that keeps coming up doesn't it it came up with um, Adele when Adele was selling yeah. a comp uh, yeah. uh, well, she wasn't, but you know, yeah. they were selling tickets for a, a concert in Wembley, wherever it was. Yeah, yeah. And they were 300 quid. And, you know, obviously then it's it's seen as an open goal by yeah. our industry to go, ah, well, you can get opera tickets for yeah. 10 quid or 20 quid, or you're free if you're yeah. under 18 and all yeah. this sort of thing. And, and and that's well-meaning and it's a powerful point and, and it, it, it abs you absolutely do need to get out there that these are not, you know, the, the opera tickets are not prohibitively expensive yeah. across the board. Yeah. But we can't, 10% inflation yep. focuses the mind on this. We can't keep making them cheaper. No, we can't. If you got to the point where you're making them free for under 18s yeah, yeah. or whatever it is, yeah. then you, you can't, unless you start paying them to come, you, can, you literally yeah, yeah. can't make no, them any cheaper. Can't. So the answers have got to lie elsewhere. And as you say, it's to do with uh, explaining the value of them. Yeah. That even at, you know, even if you're paying 100 pounds to come see an opera. Mm -hmm. So look, we're going to see, um, my partner and the kids are going to, they're nuts about um, Totoro. No way. So we're going to see, and that's on stage at the Barbican at the moment. Right. And, you know, they would, I would feel awful for them if they missed seeing that. Because okay. I know it's, you know, I know it's a good show as well. I know people involved. So I trust them. It's, mm -hmm. going to be, it's going to be quite something. And, um, you know, so my partner went online, bought tickets for December. It's, I think it's 280 quid for the four of us. Right. And she said, you know, what do you think about that? I said, that's value. That's, yeah. That's good value. Yeah. 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 Now I know it's going to be good. I know the kids are going to love it because they're they're nuts about yeah about the movie. Um, so there's a kind of sense of security with it. But yeah. knowing that, I'm going. That's not and that's not. It's a lot of money, but it's worth. But it's, it's not. A lot of but money. it's also value for money. Of course, but I think it's also a lot of money. But it's also a particularly a lot of money if you've got nowhere near that money to spend. Yeah. Of course, but I think that sometimes we do drive ourselves around in circles by just say always talking about making it cheaper and cheaper yeah, yeah. where it can't work not anymore it can't no. work I mean it was bad enough anyway because you if you went into Dragon's Den if opera didn't exist and so I've invented <laughs> this thing and the more work you do the more money you lose you'd be kicked out so I think that it doesn't work so in saying you know we yes everyone's struggling in their own private life so raising costs raising ticket prices is difficult but it's no we can't not do it like that because we have to react to those yeah. costs and, and I think it's something about the value so I've been talking about value a lot about in, internally we haven't started our 
communications for next year really yet but it's about the value and the value is a number of things it's about the transactional value of someone coming in and saying I'd like to like the show and them liking the show philanthropic value because they like us and they want to support us but I think now we have to be much more targeted about the sheer amount of social economic good that we do by mm. having those people in not only making yeah. money for the yeah. tax man or whatever but yeah. the amount of people that are in work yeah. uh, the amount of um, different organisations you know when I talk about this 378 people that work for us yeah. um, that's not including the people that come in and put our canopy on yeah. or um, build our sets yeah. or make our costumes and, and so this, this this is concentric circles about people well yeah I, I, and I think there's an important point here that we often sort of, in, in our business, in education, in healthcare, they often go, in the modern world, they go, let's get some business people in mm. and get their expertise mm. and they can tell us how to run this. But the, the, the fundamental problem with that is that the point of our business is mm. not to make money. Mm. Mm. The point of a hospital is not to make money, it's to make people better. Mm. The point of a school is not to make money, it's to educate kids. Mm. And the point of performing arts is not to make money mm. it's to make performing art yeah yeah now that doesn't mean you can just exist in isolation from the financial exactly. side of things of course you can yeah. but that's the problem with the kind of profit loss yeah view of things yeah. that brutal sort of darwinist business side of things is we're not here, we're not ultimately trying to make money now that that doesn't mean in fact it's quite the opposite that the people in the industry mm-hmm should be exploited and told, oh, Absolutely. well, we're not here to make money, so we're not going to pay you anything. Absolutely. Quite the opposite. <clears throat> and, also, the opposite. and also, it's not there that if we carry on losing money, yeah. then we can't exist, you know. And, and that's, a, that's a thing that's yeah. suddenly become now, rather than a long-term thing, that's over a couple of years. Yeah. If, if companies like ours carried on losing money the, over the last couple of years, we wouldn't be employing yeah. anyone. I mean, yeah. Let me pick you up on one other point as well. It's like this idea of, what's, of what value is is an opera company, for example, to the wider community. That's one of the things that's always impressed me about Holland Park is that it's, it's that it's, you know, it doesn't exist distinctly from the, the, the location and the community in which it exists. Yep. It's always struck me as something that's like very strong ties to what's around. Yeah, absolutely. It should do, yeah. And, um, and it's a question, you know, so my question is, let's say you're talking about a, a taxpayer-funded company, um, uh, let's say you know a, a, a national opera company you mm-hmm. go that company has to be providing value not just to the people who buy tickets and go and see it absolutely but the people who don't absolutely so you have to be able to make an argument yeah. to the man on the street in cardiff yeah. or glasgow yeah. or london yeah. so why does my national what's, what's my national opera company got to do with me why is it getting 15 million a year yeah. of my taxpayers money yeah um, when I don't even go and see it, yeah. and you've got to be able to make a strong argument to them, saying, "Yeah, but it's a good thing that it exists." It, indeed, but I think that we've never, as once again, as an issue around an individual company, so we've 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 skated around those questions in the making it uh, in reality and in as a story open to everyone. Mm. It's not the same as, as as sticking up for the value of it to everyone. Mm. You know, we all use bits of, of of the infrastructure of the country that we don't, or yeah. we all pay for bits yeah. of the infrastructure of the company that we don't use. But it's about the value of that. Um, looping around a bit because I know you've done some stuff on this. I know we can't talk forever, but the um, although I'd like to, but the um, you, you've been working a lot with uh, freelancers. Um, uh, you're doing some research about yeah. freelancers. 
what are you, what are you finding when you're talking to the freelancers at home? I mean, we know you are one, and I know loads of them, and I try to look after them as much as we can. But you've been trying to dig down into some of the yeah. in the problems. What what's the sort of couple of the main threads that are coming through at the moment when you're talking to freelancers? Yeah, so so this is through my work with freelancers make theatre work, which is a, a collective of volunteers that grew up. It sort of sprung up spontaneously during, mm-hmm. like, as a lot of things did during yep. lockdown, because people had time on their hands and they were aware that that there were problems in or issues in the industry or voices in the industry that weren't being heard, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that work has persisted because what I think has become very clear at the top of the industry is that there's a recognition that that this is uh, that this is. I, I think there's more recognition at the top of the industry, by the way, mm-hmm. that freelancers' voices need to be heard and right. and our concerns need to be addressed than there even is from the freelancers themselves right because we're sometimes a bit too yeah, yeah, yeah. you know backward and coming forward type of thing yeah. um so that's why that's why the organization has persisted even though mm-hmm. others have perhaps fallen by the wayside so we did uh, the second of five annual surveys this year mm-hmm. across the uk theater freelance workforce right across the um, entire workforce yeah so we had 15 just under 1500 responses mm-hmm. um Looking at things like uh, the financial support that was ha- that was provided yeah. during lockdown mm. and who got access to that and who didn't, mm-hmm. um, I'll give you a stat: forty-one percent of the work of, of our respondents received the SEISS right. support scheme from the right. government. Okay. That figure, you'd expect that figure to be one hundred percent, yeah, because that's exactly who it's aimed at. And, and why so why were the others not getting that? Well, a combination of the, there were a whole load, load of gaps in the government scheme that there were sort of um, if you earn more than a certain amount you didn't yep. get anything if you if you're if more than half of your income was through PAYE it was assumed you'd be yep. uh, furloughed and you'd get your support yep. through that so you know and that wasn't necessarily the case yep. um, and uh, you therefore had I'd, I'd, I'd almost say what what you overall what's revealed one of the things that's revealed in in our survey work is there's a real tale of two pandemics there's, mm. there's kind of um, where the support found its target, yeah. those people were were kind of looked after to some extent. Mm. But then there's a whole other group, mm-hmm. you know, big big group of, of freelancers who got nothing from mm. anywhere, be, be it government, charity, anything. Yeah. yeah. Um, a huge number of them have left the industry. Yeah. In in and these are these are we're not just talking about performers here. We're talking about um, backstage crew. Yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. You know. um, so that's a that's a big problem, and yeah. and has you know has. Revealed itself as the industry has opened back up because yeah. there's oh, you know, yeah, massive probably, gaps. Yeah, absolutely, I'm sure you're, you're more aware than absolutely. I am. Aware yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the other thing I think that's that's well, there's lots of things revealed, but what you know, one of the other, one of the other headline things is the sense of insecurity, mm. um, which you know, overall, uh, we asked people whether they, how they felt about their career security and, and mm. whether they felt quite secure, very, very secure, quite mm. insecure, okay. very insecure. And overall, we got sixty, roughly sixty percent of people across the workforce said that they felt quite or very insecure about their career, which is which is, you know, a huge undercurrent of insecurity yeah. in in the industry. Yeah. And what you what I was surprised at digging down into that into those numbers was that that is pretty consistent across all specialities or, or, okay. or areas right. of work in the industry yeah, it's yeah. not just you know you might think that's the, that's the performance for yeah, you, you know, yeah. no, everybody all freelancers across mm-hmm. 
the workforce is also higher as you probably you probably wouldn't be surprised to find that it's higher for um, people with disabilities it's higher for workers yep. with childcare and yep. um, and care responsibilities mm. um, higher for those from um, ethnic backgrounds of the global mm-hmm. majority and higher for those who yeah. are from a less privileged socioeconomic background yeah, yeah. Okay. That's exactly what you. Expect, it's what you would but, expect, but it's still an eye opener to see it there in black and white. And what is the organisation as a group? Um, what do you want to do with this sort of data now? Because there's time for we're expecting uh, a Labour government mm. probably within the next two years. Yeah. Um, now we would hope that they would be more open to ideas. What's the, what's the thinking on on where you go with this sort of thing now? Well. As the as people have got back to work and volunteers have got busier, there's been sort of a reduction in the amount that mm-hmm. any of these organisations that have sprung up can do. Mm-hmm. This is why a lot of them have fallen by the wayside. And yep. certainly freelancers make theatre work has got yep. has got smaller and more focused. Of course. Um, one of the conversa- so we've been having that conversation is like, you know, how much can we do and what should we do? Mm. One of the things we talked about is being diagnostic. Mm. In other words, we can't we, we, we don't have the capacity or the, or the time or the ability to come up with detailed solutions for things mm-hmm. but what we can do is diagnose the problem yeah and we've talked about this before yeah that you know in medical terms if you don't diagnose what yeah, um, yeah. what an illness is you can't treat it absolutely no it can sometimes be scary yeah if you don't know how to think about oh, this is quite a good COVID analogy if you mm. don't know how to treat uh, yeah uh, if you don't know how to treat a disease then it's sometimes scary to diagnose it. It's easy yep. to be in denial about it. Yeah. But the first step towards solving a problem has got to be to give it a name and a definition. Yeah, I and think that's... I, I, mem- I remember you saying that to me one night, and I think that, in fact, you put it slightly differently, actually, that night, and it was about it was about acknowledging to oneself where the problems were. Yeah. Because I think they're slightly, they're very similar, but they're ever so slightly different. It's like that thing of, uh, of an alcoholic or something. The first step is to say, there's a problem. Yeah. And acknowledge that there's a problem. And then you can start building it. And I think that some of the time, we're so keen to to get on, mm. to mm. get through, and yeah. very sort of, let's, let's we've got to stop and say, we need to look at this because these problems you know you know some of the work I've been doing but pre-pandemic as well you know about not paying performance only fees we mm-hmm. don't know yep. we paid everyone for money if they had COVID and they missed the missed shows um, not worrying about child care you know giving back into people you know they needed child care or, or parental care or whatever but I think that sometimes you feel like a lone voice now I know we're not because other companies are doing it but there's still not enough companies really wanting to do that yeah and that is a problem i think yeah. for you guys because i think if we're not solving the the bigger problems yeah. about trying to bring the workforce into genuinely into the 21st century i think that i think we'll continue to have these yeah. problems and, and i think that's where some of the that's where some of the problems are because we you know i've got frustrated with some people saying since we've been back properly um this really hard this tech week and i go well it always was, and realistically, it's always going to be. Mm. It just, it just is. Yeah. But there are other issues that we can try and solve about working hours, um, let's say childcare payments. You know, that people would still in the twenty first century be in an industry where you could do four weeks rehearsals, not do any shows, not get paid for. Mm. It's ridiculous. Yeah. We'd all be up in arms about yeah. that if it was another industry. 
and we yeah. have to look at we have to look at those things properly. Yeah. And 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 sometimes you, you, we're our own worst enemies, or the industry is, because we we frame it like that and say this is the fee for all rehearsals and all performances. Yeah. And obviously, a lot of agents, sometimes performers, because they've been brought up like that for the last forever turn that into performance only fees mm. and say well that's that and that's gone down but it's yeah, not yeah, yeah. we're not yeah. we're saying you're going to get this whatever yeah. you know so i think there are there are issues that we need to be brave about addressing well I, 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 yeah and and i think in particular it's those issues where the solutions where you know the solutions are complex mm. the complex issues complex solutions and so the temptation is not to engage with them at all yeah like, well let's just go back this thing of like going back to how we used to do it yeah yeah but we've got to be brave yeah, and and just because we sense that the solution is complex and mm. that it's going to take time and we we're not going to get the whole solution yeah. straight away, yeah. that's not you know we shouldn't give into the temptation of Completely therefore agree. not grappling with the issue at all. Completely. Otherwise, you leave the you leave the door open for people to come in with simpler solutions. Yeah, and and you know as you see with with modern politics, yeah, that's when you get into trouble is when you've got. Persuasive people coming in saying, "Ah, oh, this issue, this issue is simple." I couldn't we agree with you. Do that, the, but we've got the capacity for nuance. And you were talking a little while ago about the um, let's bring business people in and stuff, and it made me think of something that when we had Investec as our sponsors, mm. uh, which they were great sponsors, and there wasn't any falling out. They sponsored us for nine years, which is a massive thing. Rather than why did they leave? Why did they stay with us? It was great. You know, different attitude. Um, but one of the things is that. Twice, once when we had the Olympic torch come to the park in 2012, and um, we used some of their staff to join our chorus to do Beethoven's Ninth as the torch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They enjoyed doing that, and also they were extra non singing chorus, a group of their staff in Joelia uh, della Madonna, we did it mm. in 2010. Now, the two things that came out from those, ish- from those two projects was that they work in business, they work in finance. They couldn't believe how organized our industry was. And sometimes we, we let this stereotype oh, yeah. continue, yeah. that it's, it's with lovies and it's this. It's very structured days, it's three hour sessions, you take a tea yeah. break in the middle of that, yeah. you have an hour. 5.30, you stop. Well look, this is, this is something that singers have discovered during mm. lockdown, because there was that thing where everything stopped and suddenly, no one was an opera singer anymore. Yeah. Because you're only an opera singer while you're singing opera. <laughs> yeah. you know? and it's And it's, it's easy to lose sight of that because you know it's something that affects your whole life and your whole identity. Mm-hmm. But all we all have to ask ourselves: Who am I when I'm not singing opera? Yeah. Who am I when I'm not an opera singer? Yeah. And we all discover things. And and you know, there's plenty of singers who, having been told their whole life, oh, you know, you're an opera singer, mm-hmm. you're a bit thick, you, nothing else you can do. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. all you can do is get on stage and, mm-hmm. and look lovely and sing. Then they went off and did found had to find jobs, mm-hmm. and suddenly. In actual fact, they found they had a whole load of transferable skills. Absolutely, as you say, working to a deadline, mm. self-directed learning, yep. presentation skills. When when business leaders talk about the skills gap of, of yep. young people coming out of school and, and college now, yep. this is what they're talking about: yeah, soft yeah. skills. And lo and behold, it turns out that singers have those in abundance, yeah, yeah. and that those are transferable and highly desirable skills in the workplace. Now, this is and, and this is meant that there's singers who've gone and haven't come back. Now, yeah. thinking about the freelance workforce overall, mm. you know, let's say I'm a singer or a stage manager, whatever it is, a costume designer, where, you know, a, a wig technician. Mm. If I'm that sense of insecurity in mm. my career, mm. that's my problem while I remain in this industry. Yeah. 
but when I decide to get to the point where I go, I up sticks and leave, yeah. now it's your problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's the awareness that's, when I talk about the, the, the top of the industry being aware of this freelance yeah. workforce issue, yeah. in a way that they weren't before, mm. I think that's what's beginning to sink in. Definitely. Is that this isn't a bunch of, uh, as you say, a bunch of lovies or a bunch, you know, yeah. a bunch of singers moaning or a bunch of yeah. you know, people being precious. Yeah. It's a workforce as a whole yeah. saying there's something wrong here. Yeah. And the industry then realizing to the extent to which it relies on that workforce. The freelance workforce is 70% of the, of the theatre industry. Yeah. It can't survive that. No, and I think that's the thing we've talked about a lot over these years, and, and I hope pre-pandemic as well, because you, we have a very good <coughs> sense at our place about... Uh, I don't like using the family thing too much because it's, it's too simplistic, but mm. the... Um, but the sense of belonging, at least, and, and there's a sense of, of, of being centred when yep. you're there. And I think that you could say to a number of our chorus members who are not on good money, they're all freelancers, over a period of many years, do you feel that we, I, understand them, they look after them, I would think, hope that they would say yes. The, the thing is, is because it's not, even though we all want more money, you all want more money from the company, we want more money from donors, everything. Mm. The thing is, ultimately, though, it's it's not only ever about the money. It's about the feeling. The money will always be good if you want. If you, you you want money, you can ask for more. Don't do the job, whatever. But it's the feeling that, once again, back to value. It's a people business. In the band, you feel valued. Do you do the job? You get paid. And and my thing over a number of years has been, we've never been able to pay that much. So we need to. If that's the, if that's the situation, it's worse now even. But if that's the situation. We need to then make sure that everything else is okay. That you mm. all the all the relatively it will seem like details but are not do you get paid on time? Mm. Do you know where you're going? That's why we put the schedules out two yeah. months in advance. Do you know what you're doing so you can make other money work, yeah. other work in there. Um, do you get appreciated there? Do you make sure all this now that's not gonna be the same as having another couple of grand in your bank account, of course it isn't. But if, you, if you're gonna do the money that we've got, making sure all of those other things are okay is a big part of it. Yeah. Because then it's a part of, the once again, the value of that person, as yeah. well as just the Well, th listen, this is, yeah, but you're onto something very important here, I think. And, and I think this is gonna come even more sharply into focus over the next months and, and years, as this cost of living crisis really bites. Yeah. What is an opera company? Yeah. Now, Opera Holland Park, if, if we say an opera company is a theatre, mm -hmm. well, wh where's Opera Holland Park right yep. now? Yep. It doesn't exist. Yep. Well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? No. And you've got that sign above the door as you go onto stage. Yeah. And what does it say? We are Opera Holland Park. Yeah. Yeah. Not this is Opera Holland Park. No, no. We are, we are Opera Holland Park. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's, so, so that sense that, uh, and you know, yeah. we can all think, I, I think we're all going to have to think about this much harder. Yeah out of necessity, but what is an opera company? What is opera? And it's, and it's, and I think what the experience of the last two, three years shows is that it's not buildings. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. You can put on an opera. Yeah. Without a building. Yeah. But you can't put on an opera without people. And I think, I think, I think you must have been there, but I think through 21 particularly, I had that as one of the lines in my regular speech because um, Anna would come come up with it for me about 
that is we're not building because a mm. a we physically haven't got mm. but, but also it led on to a thing about who we were and and I think that um, you know because our outreach work for example because we're not because we're not an arts council funded company mm. we don't have to do any outreach work so immediately that immediately that that's the case I think our outreach work has a different kind of value I would say better other people wouldn't there's a different kind of value to it because we don't have to do it mm. there then it becomes a choice to do that yeah and then you choose the things that you know one, who are we and that's what we talk about a lot you know so during the pandemic we started doing a lot of um singing on zoom to, to the, all the age uk residents that we normally spoke to and perform for but then that went on another thing and we were saying what do you miss you miss talking to people so some of our singers have just started ringing people up and having a chat to them yeah. You know, as part of the job, we'd pay them for that. Right. You know, we'd say, you know, you've got an hour there, singing or speaking, but you're on the phone to someone. Now, that's really micro, so, but the thing is, I want that reflection of we, who are we, we are up on part, to say, uh, that's you, I say a lot. It's you and the audience, it's me, it's everyone. I, 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 think that, I think you're right. That's what I've talked about a lot, about the values, and I think you're absolutely right there. Who are opera companies and what is it? And that shouldn't be... I think the days of the, the, an opera company is a company that puts opera on and that's it, mm. are just gone. Because it's, well, not a, it's not a good enough business model no, for that no, to be the no. only thing. It has to have I other mean, it, benefits. It, it, it comes down to the question, comes back to the question of what is opera? And, you know, it's difficult to come up with a, with a short, watertight definition. One is, opera is what happens in an opera house. Right? Yeah, yeah. But that, that, yeah. That's not, that doesn't hold up. No. And let's, let's go back to what happened during lockdown. I think this other thing that happened was that you, meant that you should have referred to there is that barriers, traditional barriers within mm. the industry broke down. People yeah. started talking to each other because we had time to do it. Yeah. And I was invited into, you know, on Zoom, mm. but it, virtually into rooms mm. and into conversations with people. Who I, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years and I've never mm. had conversations, been, you know, mm. I, 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 You'd go to a drinks reception, you'd be introduced to the yeah, chairman yeah, yeah. or the chief yeah. executive or whatever it is. Yeah. But suddenly we're in rooms in meetings. You know, yeah. that was a steep learning curve for me because I'd never yeah, been yeah. Yeah. in a meeting for, for, since I was a teacher. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, and I rapidly grew to hate them. But, <laughs> but the fact is that, that, those, my that, those, <laughs> that those barriers broke down and suddenly everybody within the... Well, not everybody, but people in the industry were in different from different viewpoints yeah. were talking to each other and exchanging yeah. ideas and going, God, I've never known, you yeah. know, I've never seen it from that point of view before. I never knew that that was involved in this process. Yeah. That's one of the things which I think has kind of, is in danger of reverting to how it was before. Oh, I think it's already way on its way yeah. to that. And, and, yeah. and, and, and that's a big thing that I would say, if we can hold on to that, yeah. that com those conversations that were yeah. happening, yeah. And uh, provide an insight into what the way forward might be. Yeah. Because the, the the other thing about the solutions to these complex complex problems is that they lie ahead of us. Yeah. Always lie ahead of us. There's no point looking back to how it was. No, no. Do, I do. think that's absolutely right. Um, I I think that there's something I used to say that at the be beginning of the pandemic that Nick from someone else an old thing about you know most most plans at the end of a war are, are based on the war that's just gone mm. and it needs to be on the war that's yeah. and I think there's a slightly changing thing we're going to need to wrap up but before we do you're back with us this year yeah uh, are we allowed to talk about that? Uh, yeah I mean oh, right, this, okay. this is my podcast we do what we like <laughs> 
Um, what are you singing for us this year? I'm going to be doing The Father in Hansel and Gretel, which yeah. is something I haven't sung for 10 years, no. uh, and one of my favourite roles in the entire repertoire, so I'm, it's going I'm to be pretty excited about It's that. going to be great to have you back, I'm yeah. really looking forward to it. Well, I think, if it's okay with you, I think um, what we'll do when we put this out, um, we'll link it to you to, on your Twitter and everything, so to your blog, so people can read that Brilliant. around the book. Brilliant. And you've got some graphs on your Twitter thing as well, have you? Or the, not the graphs, the um, uh, results of the surveys. Yeah, you'll so get links to, so we can link to that. And, and the other thing I'm happy to do, because I've still got the data set, is yeah. and it's it's there for the benefit of the freelance workforce. So if yeah. any, anyone, organisations, or in particular individuals, yeah want to get in touch I've done this a couple of times already you know and they say look you, you know you haven't looked at this from the point of view of, yeah okay um, of this particular demographic or this yeah. aspect of it then then that data is still there for me to drill down into I'm very happy to do that so oh, people right. should get in touch that's great I mean I'm sorry this sort of cough you've got to get off and I need to go to auditions um, but I think maybe um, I think because when we it's we're recording this in November let's get over Christmas as we head towards our new season Bill Nup Towns and Gretel I think let's put another one in the diary to sort of come on to some of these yeah, thoughts point. again yeah. um, and I think because then we see, see to repeat that thing and see where we are on some of these yeah. things and we can um, deal with the Top Gun Maverick thing again as well I've got to go home and talk to Angela <laughs> that after she's listened to that and get in trouble for not shouting you down but listen, for now, it's, it's a pleasure to, and privilege to talk to you, but always love and letting some other people come into our conversations that we normally have at like midnight uh, over, <laughs> over Negroni. So, uh, Paul, thanks for coming in today. Right, nice cheers, to see you, man. No, good Thank you. you have been listening to From the Producer's Office, a series of informal podcasts with James Clutton. For more information on Opera Holland Park, please visit www.operahollandpark.com.